Welcome to episode 1 of Dining with Our Ancestors. The average person today eats that which previously the richest emperor could never have imagined. Culture, socio-economic forces, seasons, geography and plenty more all played a part in what was accessible for those who passed their torch-lit genes to us. The exploration of these powers' impact on our ancestors' diet allows us a better understanding of the genes we came to inhabit, but mostly who these people were, in turn giving us a greater depth of knowledge about who we might be. Today we visit 1840s Ireland, as we explore the conditions that imposed the diet before, during and after the potato famine. You can expect to learn how a typical Irish family was fed up to and during the famine, the state of the nutrition, how the food was prepared, life on the farm and the imperatives of ensuring survival. A radical carnivorous solution posed the Irish people with a recipe that takes homegrown cooking a little too literally. Why landowners kept dividing small holdings into smaller plots, meaning what they eat on a daily basis was diminished, and what was likely to have caused the famine, what the devastating effects this had been on the population, and finally what dietary solutions were proposed to diminish the effects of the famine. The story of the famine, also known as Great Hunger, begins in 1845 ruining up to one half of the potato crop that year, and about three quarters of the crop over the next seven years. Because the tenant farmers of Ireland, then ruled as a colony of Great Britain, relied so heavily on the potato crop, it had a catastrophic impact on Ireland and its population. How did this happen? How did it get so bad? Well, with the ratification of the Act for the Union of Great Britain and Ireland in 1801, Ireland was effectively governed as a colony of Great Britain. The British government appointed Ireland's executive heads of state, known respectively as the Lord Lieutenant and the Chief Secretary of Ireland. In all, Ireland has sent 105 representatives to the House of Commons, the Lower House of Parliament, and 28 peers titled landowners to the House of Lords. Still, it's important to note that the bulk of these elected representatives were landowners of British origin. In addition, any Irish who practiced Catholicism were initially prohibited from owning or leasing land, voting or holding elected office. Although the penal laws were largely repealed by 1829, their impact on Ireland's society and governance was still being felt at the time of the potato famine's onset. English and Anglo-Irish families owned most of the land, and most Irish Catholics were relegated to work as tenant farmers. Less than 100 years before the famine's onset, the potato was introduced by, uh, to Ireland by the gentry. However, despite the fact that only one of the variety of potato was grown in the country, it soon became a staple food of the poor. All this leads to a scarcity of food, which once we take a walk from the country estates occupied by the British and down the road to the small holding of a typical commoner time, we can begin to see what sort of trickle-down effect these laws had. So let's be generous and assume our boy's father has some land. Perhaps that doesn't sound so bad. It could be imaginably worse. The opportunity to, that land presents to grow food, to graze cattle, to potentially offer at least a diet of sustenance, right? Perhaps not. Landholding in Ireland before the potato famine had become increasingly difficult. There were a new class of British landowners, as aforementioned, 
but there still also remained the old Irish guard too. Let's assume our father's son was of moderate socio-economic background. Their plot of land before he was born was a lot bigger. His dad had grown on the same farm, not in the hedgerows where the same blackbird nested every year as a perimeter to play no further than. The world through the thorns, which he might peek a look at from time to time, was of little concern, like his mother told him, as where they were and what they had was enough. The Irish had avoided much of the industrialization that had befallen many of their European neighbours, whose songs of innocence in the sweeping valleys of the countryside had been muted whilst the heavy backing track of machinery played in front of a sooty song of experience. Ireland remained as dependent on rural-based economies as ever, which was great if you were romantic, but a fate that was before the farmer's son was heavily dependent on this non-moving. His father had pointed his hedgerow throughout his life, telling him how much further away from the house he used to be able to play, making mud pies and chasing butterflies, with no fear of being dragged inside before darkness dropped. His picket line seemed impossibly further away. His play area locked him in sight of his mother at all times, as he was not yet old enough to ask or understand why this regression occurred. But that is this story. The greater part of Ireland was owned by men who, rather than cultivating it themselves, rented it out for others to do so. This number was 97% in 1870. As in England, the individual wealth of members of the land-owning class varied considerably, depending on the size, quality and location of properties. In 1870, 302 proprietors, 1.5% of the total, owned 33% of the land and 50% of the country was in the hands of 750 families. This is difficult to imagine in farming in the UK today where most farmers at least own the land they operate on. Yet with farming increasingly becoming a game of diminishing returns, this could conceivably become a reality that returns. Didn't Bill Gates just become the largest landowner in America? Anyway, owning land in this manner became known as absenteeism. Its alleged universality and supposedly unfavourable consequences can be queried. If a man owned several estates, by definition, he was living on only one of them and absent from the others. Before 1845, an estimated 33% to 50% of Irish landowners were absentees, and a substantial portion of these were internal absentees. Staggeringly, only half the country was owned by men who lived on or near their estates. Why is the fact that Lil Billy can't play at the hedgerow his father used to a genuine issue? Why does any of this come to matter? Well, he was one of the lucky ones. He didn't realise it, but the average farm had declined from four acres to one acre, no larger than a small garden. It was not even commonplace to have this. By 1841, 40% of houses in Ireland were one-room mud cabins with natural earth floors no windows, no chimney. Furniture and cooking facilities in these hovels were primitive. Their inhabitants' diet was monotonous and largely inadequate. Other than beggars and paupers, these virtually landless labourers occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder. 
there were 596,000 of them in the 1841 census, four years before the famine. They faced a shrinking demand for their services after the French wars as domestic industry declined and corn growing contracted. Before 1838, irregularly employed married men relied on small potato plots for survival. These were often rented on a yearly basis from local farmers and paid for by labour services, a system known as Cornacre. As the youngest of two sons, this bad world beyond the hedgerow waited Billy once he was grown. The farm. What did they grow to eat? Well, Billy's dad optimised their remaining four acres in this manner. One acre was spent on growing potatoes. They borrowed the neighbour's donkey to pull the plough as the seeds were planted in the trenches that opened up. At maximum horsepower, this task of ploughing one acre could be achieved in one day. After the ground dried out, Billy's dad and the donkey ran a cultivator over the plough. The drills needed opening with a shovel before fertiliser was distributed, which Billy's mother often did as it was considered a female contribution. The importance of fertiliser in the story I shall return to. The hardy and calorie-dense vegetable became not only Billy's favourite food, luckily, but suited his father's soil so that its sprouting was guaranteed. Experimentation was not a luxury that was affordable. A bad crop or a drop in calories replaced by an interesting or more complex taste was unsustainable. It was not only Billy's father who prioritised a large section of their land this way. A small holding perched on the top of a slope, several neighbours' plots mimicked their own exactly. By the time of the famine, nearly half of Ireland's population relied almost exclusively on potatoes for their diet. The other half ate potatoes frequently. We'll sit down with Billy when his breakfast is cooked and he tucks into it shortly. But I'll show you around the rest of the farm first. The acres next to the potatoes were reserved as fallow bogland from which they would gather fuel for cooking and keeping warm. A smaller one-room hut would be an impossible task to heat in the winter months, but they sure had to try. The space also doubled up as Billy's playroom, naturally. To the right of this, the final acre was reserved for oats. The oats would be dry stored after harvest to make sure they were edible for as long as possible. Billy's mum set about the rationing of the oats. A bunched fist of oatmeal dropped into the pot with a slightly more relaxed clench the bigger you were. Billy, being the smallest, had the fewest spoonfuls to look forward to. He wasn't quite yet old enough to get dragged out to help his dad every time. So he sat in the dark with the pillowing smoke and watched his mother craft the first meal of the day. The oats in a pan with water were brought to the boil. She made sure to keep stirring. A singular burnt oat stuck to the bottom would be nothing short of wasteful. She sent Billy to run to the farm his father had just returned the donkey to, with the hopes of lending a quart of milk for the third time this week. Billy, reluctant to leave the nodes springing from a warm, hot meal up his nostrils for too long, dashed out of the room and hurtled across the cratered land. 
In the meantime, she retained a watchful eye over the pulsating pot. If as a kid you ever saw Oliver Twist, which you must have, you will have come across the outcome of this recipe. Only the Irish didn't call it gruel, which makes it sound a lot nicer. When Billy returns with her milk, just in time, before the oatmeal it becomes congealed and turns into a cake. The swilling of the milk around the oatmeal returns it to a texture that could be fed to a baby. A few stirs and breakfast was up. A simple enough recipe to begin the day with. Billy's devouring of his lot was strictly supervised by his mother. Not that she thought he was the type, but to take more than his allocated setting from the pot would be stealing directly from his brother's or father's mouth. And while he was a grown lad, their energy was expended dependently on the upkeep of the entire operation. So he had to know his place. The non-contributing youth were burdensome on families such as this. Human babies are born prematurely, whilst dependency on parents is the longest in the animal kingdom. To this, Jonathan Swift, a famous Irish political writer during the 18th century, offered a solution. A modest proposal, he called it, is Swift's reconciliation for preventing the children of the poor to be a burden on their parents or country. No more would the entitled little scallywags take food from their contributing family members. No. The short book is presented as an economic treatise, highlighting the ineptitude of Ireland's politicians, the hypocrisy of the wealthy, the tyranny of the English, and the squalor and degradation in which he sees so many Irish people living. Surely, the country he, and many others saw as a great one, could not be occupied by such issues. So they need a radical resolution. The author argues, by hard-edged economic reasoning, as well as from a self-righteous moral stance, for a way to turn this problem into a solution. His proposal, in effect, is to fatten up these undernourished children and feed them to Ireland's rich landowners. I did say it was radical. Appealing to logic and reason, children of the poor could be sold into a meat market at the age of one, he argues thus combating overpopulation and underemployment, sparing families the expense of childbearing while providing them with a little extra income, improving the culinary experience of the wealthy and contributing to the overall economic well-being of the nation. Let's not forget, this is a country overcommitted to the agricultural, laden with leeches in the British, who, who rather than leaving, are going to need feeding, and feeding well. The author offers statistical support for his assertions, and gives specific data about the number of children that would need to be sold, their weight, their price, and the projected consumption patterns. He suggests some recipes for preparing this delicious new meat, and he feels sure that innovative cooks will be quick to generate more. He also anticipates that the practice of selling and eating children will have positive effects on family morality. As husbands will treat their wives with more respect, and parents will value their children in ways hitherto unknown, obviously. His conclusion is that the implementation of this project will do more to solve Ireland's complex social, political and economic problems than any other measure that has been proposed. He recommends this recipe if it was something you would like to try. A modest meal, babies are best eaten as a primary ingredient of an Irish stew.
along with carrots, onions and potatoes. Boil, then add chopped vegetables and add stock. Bring back to the boil and simmer. Of course, thankfully, the political pamphlet was distributed as a piece of satire to appeal to the Irish people's lackadaisical sleepwalk into absurdity by presenting the ridiculous. The tract is an ironically conceived attempt to find out a fair, cheap and easy method for converting the starving children of Ireland into sound and useful members of the Commonwealth. Swift argues this is something that people should have been looking towards, a means of regeneration and rejuvenation, which they were not. The political classes, mostly the British, were benefiting from the situation, so were never going to speak out against it. The most deprived, the working class Irish, were too narrowed in on survival to even begin to mobilise against the oppressive forces. So no, the Irish did not turn to cannibalism to sustain their own families, but the situation was at a point desperate enough that the potential of doing so could be satirised as being modest. Again, this is all before the famine began. Billy, unlike Oliver Twist, dare not ask for more. His stomach presented the idea to his mind, but he knew his mother could get an ironclad grip on his ear just the same way Mr Bumble could. Yet, in his defence, now that no one could eat him, I doubt walking round the snowy streets singing Boy for Sale would prove fruitful. So he ran to tell the others that their breakfast was served, the promise of still warm oatmeal enough to encourage them to down tools and scupper inside. Billy's dad's small holding had shrunk during his lifetime due to subletting. In 1771 census, a farm was let to one family. By 1845, the same space had 300 inhabitants, most subtenants of the original leaseholder. Another example of the crisis caused by such an extreme subdivision of lands comes from the Trinity College estate. In 1843, two years before the famine, there were 12,000 tenants. A shocking 1% of tenants owed their rent to the college themselves. 45% of this was subtenants. Those who were renting from the 1% owed that money to the estate itself, but split up their land to offer it out to new tenants also. The final percentage, 54%, were tenants of these 45%. Subtenants of the subtenants, who had split the land into even smaller sections. Anti-landlord propaganda, which portrayed tenants as powerless victims of landlord oppression, had been a major influence on both political and historical approaches. Landlords traditionally have been found guilty of several related crimes against the Irish tenants. The rents they charged have generally been considered to have been excessively high, bordering on legalised robbery. Even if the tenants paid these extortionate rents, they are reputed to have lived under permanent threat of eviction. Since landlords regularly resorted to widespread and indiscriminate clearances, such practices were not only morally indefensible, but also economically ruinous. It starved the countryside of capital and eroded the tenant farmer's incentive to invest as well. Billy would expend the energy granted to him by the oats by dividing his time between learning from his dad, helping his mum and playing with the kids on nearby plots. This seemed as energy efficient a regime as one can impose on a child, as a burden that his own 
survival is necessary so that you can learn the management techniques of the land must be watered down with some plaiting of the neighbour's donkey's hair from time to time. His parents rarely sought out pleasure-seeking activities as they're confined to the rigorous schedule of survival. Orwell said on balance life is suffering. Only the very young or the very foolish imagine otherwise. These pre-existing tensions made life pretty bleak for these people in Ireland. Yet these conditions meant that the likelihood their peril could get immeasurably worse was pretty high. The nature of the distribution of the land through lets and sublets meant that if catastrophe hit and people couldn't pay rents, the subletting tenants would likely be ousted so that the original tenant could reunite the land in an attempt to farm it for more money. This would leave millions homeless and without the potential to grow their own food. As the benefit of the future allows us, catastrophe did hit, but it did not quite spring from an economic crisis. I said earlier we would come back to the fertiliser. Traditionally, fertiliser is repurposed manure as it leads itself towards the natural pattern of nutrient distribution that the universe has manifested. Grass grows until it's fertile. The cow grazes over the patch eating the grass which it uses as an energy source. The waste product is returned to the ground where the soil uses the nutrients to feed the grass. We all know this, the circle of life in some shape. At some point in the early 1840s, Billy's mum must have been persuaded to try a new fertiliser that all the neighbours were raving about. The neighbour had sown his plot with it last year, and spoke of twice as big a yield from half as much land. The opportunity for more food, his mum did not even need to think about. Of course, also, the extent to which he could research his new fertiliser was very limited. Who could she ask? Who did she know? Guano had landed from South America and risen in popularity, as it did increase yield effectively. As a result, she was feeling positive about their chances this winter and decided on increased portions for everyone this evening. The nutrition of the diet. Perhaps it is our modern usage of potatoes that made the data relating to nutritional impact surprising to me. We also accompany most forms of potato by drenching it in sunflower oil, but usually I'd always seen potatoes interpreted quite widely as a plate filler. You have fish and chips. You have bangers and mash. The toppings sit disrespectfully on the face of the jacket potato. Crisps are required just to mute a hungry stomach. As more than 3 million people in Ireland existed solely on this diet, it is at the least sustainable over a long period, obviously. A family of five would get through a pound each every day. Especially when contrasted contextually to their English and European cousins, the Irish peasants had it better. The Europeans relied on bread the same way the Irish potato, which is far less nutritious. The potato is rich in protein, carbohydrates, minerals and vitamins. The executive director of the Washington State Potato Commission Yes, that is a real thing. In 2010, embarked on a 20-day potato-only diet to prove this point. 
Now, whether it came out of the two-month experiment healthier and lighter is a more, more of a slight against what he had been consuming previously. It still made his point. Whether this can be the vegan response to the lion diet, I wouldn't bet on it. It is also imperative to remind ourselves, despite the nutritional advantages the Irish had over the English, neither diet was designed. His nutritional information was limited at the time. The media reporting during the catastrophe that it was inferior agriculture stemmed from the point of placing blame on the farmers themselves. One chemist, John Aldridge, even suggested that potatoes were less nutritious than hay, obviously laden with the implication that the Irish farmers lived and sustained themselves in a worse manner than the few animals they kept. This anti-Irish sentiment revolved largely around blaming the farming class for the famine. Again, the day-to-day living that life in such desperate times and forces meant that Billy's mum firstly didn't have much choice around what to feed them, but also had not even the remotest nutritional education. Another point to reiterate concerning nutrition is that life lived in proximity to the land usually indicates that health and nutrition should be taken care of necessarily. When she sent Billy foraging in the afternoon, unless he ate a mushroom, which he was forbidden, Everything else was fresh, organic, and of nutritional value. The modern child, when their complaints of hunger become greater than any parents want not to drive to the shop, is met with everything which is the opposite. So whilst nutrition wasn't a concern in the slightest, if as a farmer you are going to be dependent on one source of food, potatoes is far from a bad bet. The problem is that the fertiliser Billy's mum had used like almost every farmer in Ireland, is likely to have been carrying late blight, a disease that destroys both the leaves and the edible roots of the potato plant. It was tragically in their desperation to provide more that they were stripped of the opportunity to make anything at all. So whilst by now Billy had returned from his afternoon forage with enough brambles to sweeten his tooth before dinner, the supply of the food that fueled the nation was dwindling, and quickly. I feel the nature of proceedings from here on are a little too real for my literary account to continue with, so I shall read instead a few first-hand accounts. Roger Cantwell, Survivor of the Famine Over especially the last two years, life was miserable. We were always hungry and lost weight. England gave us some Indian corn and maize, but it was poorly ground and caused abdominal pain and diarrhoea. In an event to earn some money, I joined a public works labour force, sponsored by the British, building roads and digging ditches that seemed to have little purpose. It did pay 10 pence per day, 12 pence equaling one shilling, almost double my salary as a potato farmer. By August 1846, many of my countrymen had joined me in this endeavour as the labour force increased fivefold to 560,000. We tried planting potatoes again in 1846, but stalks and leaves of the potatoes were blackened, accompanied by a sickening stench, and within only three to four days the whole crop was obliterated. Our family was very fortunate, somehow avoiding the pestilence, typhus, relapsing fever, dysentery and scurvy that many of our neighbours succumbed to. We narrowly avoided having to go to one of the workhouses. 
the Irish poor land system resulted in 130 such workhouses, with a total of 100,000 beds. But the British goal was bizarre. They wanted to make poverty so unendurable that we would embrace the virtue of the saved, namely to be more industrious, self-reliant and disciplined. Hard to do, I'd say, when one is starving and out of work. Many of the British took the attitude that the famine was God's punishment towards sinful people. We Catholics didn't agree with this nonsense. Despite the fact that many of us were starving, our country kept having to export foods to England, oats, bacon, eggs, butter, lard, pork, beef and salmon. In return, Britain did open up soup kitchens for us, but of 2,000 planned, only half were in operation in 1847. These soup kitchens were the basis of the famine relief. It appears that the response was the minimal amount of effort required, as it looks like it was done enough to stem the issues. It of course wasn't. Obviously, once the famine began, the typical diet changed from the no longer accessible potato to literally anything. The resulting abdominal pain from eating maize is likely due to be the fact that stomachs weren't used to breaking down grains. The kitchens were done by landlords and religious groups, initially then by the government, beginning in 40, 1847, recognised as the worst year of the famine. Chemists were not happy with many of these soups either, dominated as they were by vegetable cast-offs and boiled grains. Feeding people a vegetarian soup, Aldridge claimed, was akin to feeding them in the same manner as cows and sheep. As a quote, as a result, manifestations of industrial exertions could not be expected. Dietary Solutions to the Famine Aldrich, like many scientific men of his time, thought that meat was a necessary component of the diet of a civilised human. He only endorsed soups made with meaty broth as sufficiently nutritious. Other commentators argued for an entire overhaul of the Irish agricultural system in order to supply the populace with more meat and more bread, markers of civilization, unlike the potato. How a country without its fuel was going to secure enough money to buy and then produce this meat was not detailed. There were interesting dissenting voices as well. James Horton, an abolitionist and sometime activist for repeal of the Union, proposed a vegetarian diet as a solution to Ireland's problem. His reasoning might impress conservationists today, as he believed that redu reducing dependence upon cattle raising would create more jobs in a diversified agriculture and produce healthier humans. Contemporaries were less impressed and dubbed him Vegetable Horton because of his efforts to support a vegetarian society in Britain and Ireland. Reformers of 19th century Ireland rejected the idea of a vegetarian diet not just because it didn't appeal to their palates, but mainly suggesting that living on a pig or other animals was the only way to be properly human. Eating animals proved that humans were at the top of the pecking order, with the humans believing their God-given dominion over the rest of the animal kingdom was paramount in what still remains today a deeply religious country. As expected, none of these solutions proved to work. A starving nation does not care how it eats, it only cares that it does. Cantwell continues with his account, saying that the year Britain passed its extended poor law, shifting the cost of feeding the starving masses and the maintenance of poor houses to the Irish landowner. This, in effect, made eviction of tenant farmers, 
like he was, an efficient way for the landowner to lower his tax. Between 1847 and 1851, the eviction rate rose nearly 1,000%. We held on until June 1849, when George Forsett hired agent Richard Wilson to bring in a crew of men overnight and destroy all of the little cabins as 30 tenants lived in. He did offer to pay our passage via ship, first to Liverpool and eventually to New York. How big of him? End quote. Over these six years, it is estimated one million people died, with up to two million emigrating to North America or Britain. Some of you listening to this right now will be in those places, sat content on the edge of your sofa, or out breathing that country's fresh air as a direct result of these happenings. I know I am one of them. The wider response. Robert Trull, the Protestant rector of Shoal, County Cork, Ireland, was one of the people who pleaded for aid. Despite his personal dislike of Catholics, he was horrified by what he saw happening to his own parish. In addition to setting up a soup kitchen and raising money as part of the Shoal Relief Committee, he wrote about the devastation he witnessed. Trail was shown in a drawing in the Illustrated London News tending to dying. A letter to the London Times in 1847 described the suffering he had seen when he accompanied Trail to Shaw. Quote, Three-fourths of the inhabitants you meet, wrote Caffin, carry the tale of woe in their features and persons as they are reduced to mere skeletons. Trail himself succumbed to typhus later that year and died. Sir Charles Travellian, who was in charge of the administration of government relief, supported a policy of laissez-faire, believing that the government should refrain from intervention in economic matters, including the situation in Ireland. He also expressed the virulent anti-Irish views that many in England held, that the Irish were lazy, drank too much, and were to blame for their own predicament. These mostly working class stereotypes, the political elite could cookie cutter into any unsuitable situation, basically. Although Queen Victoria privately contributed to charities for Ireland and Scotland, and finally visited Ireland in 1849, her response has been characterised as indifferent and lacklustre. She expressed concern over the people suffering, but also on occasion echoed commonly held prejudices about them. In 1861, the Irish activist and journalist John Mitchell, who was arrested and deported to Bermuda for his views, wrote, The Almighty sent the potato blight, but the English invented the famine. Of those that did not flee for lands anew, what was their understanding of what had happened to their food source? Well, studies of the Irish folk tradition paint the idea that a commonplace reaction was to interpret the famine as a divine punishment. Although, like Mitchell iterates, the role of the British could never be understated. Resolution The famine was widely over in 1852. Through the operation of the food being pilfered by London previously, enough to feed 18 million was eventually stemmed, whilst the potato crops recovered. Ireland's population, which was 6 million just seven years earlier, now stood at 2.5 million stomachs to feed. So the return to the diet of those who remained could continue. No coordinated response to the crisis of housing without a mobilisation against the British and in thankfully ignoring Swift's proposal. All created a committal to a diet that placed far too much pressure on it. 
whilst the sustenance and nutritional value might be better than expected. The meddling back of aristocracy forced the common people into what became an untenable dietary dependence, one which in their attempt to improve the crop on, tragically instead of satiety, provided death and decimation. Thank you for listening. Please consider subscribing and I'll see you next time.